Today is March 25th, and we're at the beginning of an unprecedented global health crisis. Since we first started planning this podcast last week, more countries have closed schools, and there are places where schools are closing for the entire school year. Today, we'd like to consider the education impacts, particularly in terms of impacts on opportunities, the risks of increased violence and abuse as homes may not be safe spaces for children, making those vulnerable to abuse more vulnerable. How does this impact mental health services, especially when home visits are lessened if postponed for the time being? We will also discuss the proliferation of apps, in many cases now mandated by schools, without time for due diligence in evaluating privacy and safety concerns and ensuring safeguards for children. With this increased use of tech, less supervision, and overall chaos and uncertainty, kids may, might be reaching out more to social media contacts because they are isolated too, and so mo more vulnerable to potentially abusive contacts. We have a lot to cover today. I'm Monica Bolger, an education PhD who studies child rights, education technologies, and data privacy. Joining me today are two colleagues who have spent decades attempting to improve children's rights in digital and physical spaces and advise child-friendly policies globally. Patrick Burton has extensive experience at both a research and policy level on child and youth victimization, school violence prevention, and youth resilience. Previously executive director of the Center for Justice and Crime Prevention in South Africa, he has undertaken research on violence in childhood and child online protection in 34 countries across Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and the Pacific Island countries and territories, engaging in qualitative and quantitative studies of over 45,000 children's safety and well-being, and he is phoning in from Cape Town, South Africa. Emma Day is a human rights lawyer specializing in children's rights. Emma started out her career in Rwanda in 1999, soon after the genocide. She also lived and worked for several years in Kenya, Thailand, and Indonesia, where she worked on a range of human rights issues, including health, prevention of child sexual exploitation, and rights of underserved populations. She has worked for the Open Society Foundation, Data and Society Research Institute, as well as the UNDP, UN Women, and the UN Global Commission on HIV and the Law. Since 2017, Emma has worked for the UNICEF East Asia and Pacific Regional Office, leading the regional office's work on child online protection. Emma is a Fulbright Scholar at UC Berkeley, where she is pursuing a second LLM, specializing in law and technology with a focus on child rights. She is also a 2019-2020 affiliate with the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. The three of us have worked together in Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa on the prevention of online child sexual exploitation, commissioned by UNICEF and funded by the Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children. We are also members of the Global Kids Online Network. All opinions expressed here are our own. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. Nice to be here. In speaking with you both in the past week in preparation for our discussion, um, we are concerned about the conditions children will suddenly find themselves in with school closures and also the limiting of mental health and social services. The diversity of situations children find themselves in is vast and families may be potentially impacted by death, illness, economic instability, 
and an increased potential for violence, both within the home and externally in the broader community. So let's start with schooling. Before we dive into vulnerabilities that are potentially increased by a massive shift to digital, let's start by talking about the physical risks presented by schools being closed and the potential that homes are not safe spaces, and also that schools may have provided food and other basic services and resources that children may not now receive. Patrick, as an expert in, um, in prevention of violence, both towards children and women, what are some things we should be concerned about right now with uh, children being forced to be at home with school closures? Well, I think we, we, we make some, some fundamental assumptions about where, where children are safe. Um, and we often think that as long as children in particular are at home, it's a safe space, no harm can come to them. They're not at risk of being being um, exposed to, predated by strangers um, or experiencing physical harms they might outside of the home. But what we know from much of the international evidence is that particularly sexual violence often occurs in the home. Um, often the risk of sexual violence within homes or physical violence within the home um, committed by parents or, or, or others within the household is exacerbated when those households are under strain and stress. So where you have households that are economically strained, um, where you've got households where caregivers and parents might be living at a higher level of stress, there's a higher likelihood of children being exposed or experiencing violence within the home environment as well. And so we, we think children might be safe at home, um, but it's actually exposing them to different types of risks. Um, and as I say, we've got a lot of evidence around the types of interpersonal violence that, that occur and of child abuse that occurs within the home environment. And so we need to, to think about it in those respects as well. And I think we can say the same about violence against women. You know, um, we know that the majority of violence against women is committed, of acts of violence against women are committed by people known to the victim. And often those are within the home, either the immediate family or extended family. Um, and so where we have now families confined to homes, it may be, you know, small families, there may be extended families. We need to be aware of the increased risk of children and of women within those homes environments. Thank you. Um, and Emma, did you want to add from a policy and legal perspective? Sure. Um, I think the the risk at the moment, because this is an emergency situation, there's a kind of hierarchy of needs. So we're looking at a situation where, where it seems like an older demographic of people are at risk of death. So this becomes the overriding concern for, for governments and the public in general. And there's a sort of assumption that the children are okay. So decisions that are made by governments who, who are declaring states of emergency, which give them very broad powers to, to enact rapid legislation and push, push things through that, that impact everybody in society, including children, um, are, are made with the, the front of mind being the, <clears throat> the, light, the life and um, survival of, of the older population. So I think that we need to make sure that, that in this context, we keep children front of mind as well and understand that they are being impacted by this even potentially the physical side of it is is seems to be less at the moment but their mental health is certainly being affected and the and the context they're living in is is certainly being affected 
I think that's a really important point that we're, that we're talking about here, that this assumption that children are okay and, and this assumption that homes are safe. It's, it's frightening in a way to think that, that kids really, their needs really aren't being addressed. I think we're, we're seeing many instances where children are being, un, are left unsupervised or in circumstances that are, um, that might be frightening for the child. Um, and it might just be a case where their basic needs aren't being met in terms of, um, uh, running water, electricity, uh, food and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I think we should also be talking then about inequalities. There is a range here. We're now dealing with families where parents have abruptly lost their jobs or may need to work from home. Um, there may be no devices in the home and yet schools are expecting there to be, um, or they may be sharing devices. There, there's a lot here in terms of inequalities. And, and so uh, what are your thoughts about that in terms of things we should be thinking about? If I can jump in, Monica, um... But I'd like to actually, even before we get to inequalities, just say some, something else about what, what Emma was saying around social services and around putting children at the forefront of our mind. And I think the other thing that we do need to think about is that, as you know, we've spoken about, is that often schools are the point of contact and the point at which children get access to feeding schemes, to nutrition that they might otherwise not have. Um, and it is very much a matter of inequality there as well. So it's not just a matter of inequality in terms of the devices and the resources they might have in their home and being able to go online in their home, but also around the inequality um, in terms of the social support systems that are in place for children. That they currently now don't have access to, and whether it's access to school social workers or counsellors um, that they now no longer have access to. You know, in in South Africa, where I am now, we've just going into a three week lockdown, um, and we, as part of the work that that we do, we provide um, home visitation schemes and direct counselling to children at school, both. Um, in disadvantaged communities. And we can now no longer provide those services either directly to the home or through the schools because of the lockdown. And so those resources are also now being taken away from children. Um, and we don't really have a backup strategy to deal with that. And so we need to think about, as Emma pointed out, how do we think about that going forward? Um, and I think there is a link between both the risks that and the lack of services there, but also the inequalities, um, I think that you've, you've just raised. I also think that there's an opportunity here in a way, because th this situation is shining a light at the moment, definitely on the lack of funding that's gone into health systems around the world. And, and suddenly we're seeing that Many people have been advocating for, for more funding for, for years and have not been heard. But suddenly overnight, millions or billions, in fact, are made available to strengthen those systems in, in many countries around the world. And perhaps if we can bring children to the fore of this as well, we can also use this opportunity to strengthen the other systems, social welfare systems, education systems that that are part of this picture and are, and are part of this crisis that that around the world that we're seeing at the moment. Emma, I, I think this 
issue of systems and the investment in systems is such a critical one for children because as you say we you know this is highlighting shortcomings in the health system but it's now leading to the identification of all these gaps in social support systems and i'm thinking from a violence prevention perspective and from a child protection perspective how important all these systems the integration of all these systems and these health systems and the social support systems and internet access and the education system linking together actually is um sorry how how important those systems are to operate in coordination and collectively um in order to keep children safe and i think there've been there's lots of evidence and there's been lots of progress on trying to get that integration of systems happening in order to prevent violence against children and and to improve children's safety generally but i think this is also leading to that identification of shortcomings in those individual systems but also how those systems are working together and how difficult it is and how challenging it is um to get them to work together but also recognizing that this is an opportunity to build on that and actually take a lot of learning away from that And as you both have said, these systems are woefully underfunded. And what we're talking about here when we say systems is we're talking about response systems. So when 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 a child is identified as endangered in some way, um either through abuse or uh, through lack of resources, then then there are varying response systems to help that child whether those are social support, mental health services, um interventions as you mentioned Patrick in the school system or interventions as you mentioned Emma um policy wise and and then also within the community and so yes this is a very important issue that these these have been underfunded and as you're pointing out Emma there is the possibility when there's the political will and motivation to address that so getting back to this issue of inequality because i think that 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 is part of 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 this um larger picture that we're discussing um what are we seeing emma you and i spoke about this last week and and we were talking about the vast differences for children um in say indonesia or in in other countries that you've studied and um and i know patrick you've seen this quite a bit in africa so emma what are some things we should be thinking about in terms of inequalities and i really am appreciating that we're looking at this also as an opportunity to highlight or shine a light on on these inequalities in a way to maybe um mediate them best we can i think um this world is full of inequalities at a macro and micro level so there's clearly going to be be huge inequalities between what um what is available in terms of kind of homeschooling for children in in western countries compared to to developing countries where where internet penetration may not be that high and where there will be large sections of the population who certainly don't have laptops at home um and perhaps then the inequality is even where children have access to a phone it may not be a smartphone and if it is a smartphone there's a limit to what you can do educationally on a smartphone as compared to a laptop um and and then there's also inequalities in terms of the the capacity of of parents and to actually engage with their children um with with their literacy level um if you're asking parents to suddenly play the role of a teacher with a curriculum that's been set by the government that can be very challenging for a lot of parents um and there are definitely inequalities there so I, some of the things i've been seeing 
in the media some of the, it, it's quite a the, the advice to parents is based on an assumption of quite a privileged household where oh yeah just you know don't put too much pressure on your kids take time to relax enjoy this time do some artwork with them take them out into the woods you know this kind of thing is um is not necessarily available to to many many families around the world i think that's absolutely right emma and i think you know what what i've seen in certainly where i'm working at the moment um and i think we've seen it in the us and many european countries as well um is that isps and various service providers and telecom operators are trying to address things like data and the cost of data and they they increasing speeds and they're making certain certain um sites and resources available um free of charge and and they they trying to work on it from a supply side but that doesn't address inequalities in terms of the technical skills and the digital skills um of the parents those that are working with children and sometimes of the children themselves coming from disadvantaged backgrounds who might actually not have the technical skills that they need um and of course it you know we assuming that that teachers and educators who might be trying to teach remotely um themselves have the skills to do that and the technical skills to do that um and then of course there are the issues around the privacy and the protection of of um data etc that are also thrown into the equation and i think perhaps um children who are coming from or located within better resourced and high income households and families we could argue are potentially aware of some of the data protection um issues but children coming from from poorer households um i think don't really have the knowledge and the awareness around data protection either and privacy so it increases further risks for children there thank you for bringing us to the digital um, issues and the three of us recently uh, completed field work in East Asia, where we interviewed 301 uh, teens aged 11 to 19. So uh, actually preteens and teens. And one of our major findings was, in fact, that the adults um, in, involved with the kids' lives, whether they were parents, caretakers, or educators, lacked digital literacy skills and uh, would often take phones away from children um, for minor infractions, often for up to the entire school year. And, uh, and so I think it is a very critical issue that parents and educators might not have the skills to move abruptly to online, um, in addition to, as we're saying, access in the home. Um, so why don't we move to that and talk about what this massive shift to digital might mean in terms of children's safety? We're dealing with quite a few issues here. We're dealing with uh, at the tech platform level, so the corporations collecting data on the children and that not necessarily being clear or transparent with uh, teach with with schools requiring kids to start using education platforms uh, without much vetting. There's 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 an enormous possibility that data is being collected because there hasn't been due diligence in safeguarding children right now. That's not a priority. So we don't really know all that's being collected or how it's being used or how it's being shared, particularly when 
schools are using platforms that aren't necessarily intended for education first. Um, and then we have the safety issues, uh, as, as we discussed earlier, that children are just now online all day long. Uh, we don't, we don't know, uh, the, the, how much then they're being exposed to additional risks, particularly, um, people who, who, uh, predators, uh, would be aware that kids are more vulnerable in this moment and, and could certainly take advantage. So, so why don't we talk about that a little that in, in addition to these concerns about the physical spaces and the inequities that, that exist, what are some of the concerns we might have around, uh, children being increasingly on digital, um, on social media platforms, um, online, more vid- more game playing, et cetera. Monica, I think you've, you've really in a way encapsulated so many of the things that we need to be concerned about there. There's the data issue, there's the privacy, there's the, the tech skills, but there's also the, um, obviously more, and perhaps I think what's, possibly at the forefront of people's mind more when they do think about this, the risks of online child sexual exploitation, et cetera, um, that, that children might be increasingly encountered, encountering um, simply because they're spending more time online. And it's not, I think there are two aspects of it. I think the fact that children are likely to be spending more time online obviously increases their exposure to these risks simply by virtue of the fact they are spending more time online. And then obviously there's the aspect around predators will be more aware that children are spending more time online um, and so are likely to try and take advantage of that. Um, We also know that children themselves often inflict violence online. Um, And so, you know, with children spending more time online, there's also more opportunities for that to happen. Um, And so those risks obviously increase. Um, and I think, um, you know, from a, certainly from the work that we've done around parents and caregivers, often parents feel disempowered. Um, they, they lack the power and the knowledge, um, the technical skills. They feel that they lack that in order to speak to children. And in some instances that might be true, you know, their children might know more about the risks online and how to keep themselves safe online online but in many instances um parents overestimate their children's knowledge in relation to their own so i think it's just so important that those conversations start to be had and i think this is an opportunity for parents to start having those conversations um around online safety but i think one of the other concerns that parents are likely to have and that people generally will have is this, this this ongoing discussion around screen time. And obviously, you know, we've all sp- spoken about this together in, in, in detail, and there's just so much really good work that's being done around it mm. that's showing the importance of unpacking what screen time is and looking at context and looking at context and looking at what children of different ages are doing online. Um, and the different types of activities and trying to think about the time they're spending online in those terms. How much time are they spending playing games? And are, what kind of games are they? How much time are they spending online chatting to friends or on social media or using it for research purposes? And so I think when we start thinking about, you know, because there are going to be concerns about, and I do this in inverted commas, 
internet addiction and screen time. Um, you know, we that there are really concerns around that. We need to think, make sure that parents are thinking about it in terms of okay, how do I engage with my child about what they're doing online? What's positive? What's recreational? What's possibly not so positive as well? Um, so I think we've got all these different aspects of it that we need to look at, and these conversations parents need to start having. This is actually reminding me of conversations we had in East Asia where uh, on both sides of, of this issue, uh, we spoke with uh, some very affluent teens who were accessing the dark web because their fathers were leaving it up. So there's this possibility of children being exposed to uh, really upsetting content uh, because they're at home. Uh, we also, though, were speaking with refugee children and street children who very confidently explained to us how they would block people um, who who did anything, you know, quote unquote, creepy, right? Um, anything that seemed upsetting or offensive, um, they would block them. And part of me wonders if they were overconfident in their ability to protect themselves. But I also was, was um, I think we were uh, heartened to see that they did understand how to use the privacy settings and how to block people and how to set boundaries for themselves. Um, Emma, you look like you were about to jump in too. I think it's true that children will definitely be spending more time online. Um, and I think we have to think about the context that's happening in because children are also going to be experiencing high levels of anxiety. All the adults around them are. And, and thinking about what impact that might have on, on the way they interact with each other and also their vulnerability to to predators who we know something about the grooming pattern that that predators tend to prey on children who are looking for some kind of emotional support and this seems to be a context where that might be heightened at the moment but i think the other side of that is that there are there are there are ways to give children access to services online and to connect them to helplines and and that's something that we need to be that we have been working on as a sector, but that really we need to put more emphasis on now, making sure that that there are alerts that make it um, easier for children to see where they can go to seek help and that that then connects to qualified professionals who are able to give that support virtually online by phone um, and to, so that we are we are strengthening our systems through the virtual world as, as well as just offline. I think this really leads then into the recommendations and uh, possible solutions that, you know, would, would end this sort of on a, a positive note and also on an actionable note. And uh, Patrick, you mentioned uh, the, the increased time might lead to increased digital literacy, um, as Emma also um, supported. And I think that that's very true, that um, one positive gain out of this might be that people who were uncertain about um, being online and, and maybe lacked confidence might, you know, get a lot more experience and training in that, especially uh, parents and educators. Uh, of course, there's the, the downside that, that children are being exposed to more risks and potentially more harms. Um, 
So, so that, that would need to be balanced. But as Emma was saying, um, this is an opportunity to grow the helplines and to support ways that children can report things digitally. Now, I feel like I'm talking trade-offs in each of these scenarios because then for children who don't have access to the digital, how are they able to do this? And so maybe um, in addition to the digital helplines, I know that a lot of countries had stopped doing phone helplines, and so maybe that's something that needs to be revisited. I also think that, um, as as we've all discussed, that that we're seeing what happens when when we don't invest in um, in in these essential support networks. Uh, we have we have worked in a sector that is traditionally underfunded, and that while politicians say this is important, and while charity groups and philanthropies say that protecting children is an important area, if we look at the money, that doesn't seem to support that claim. And so maybe now with all of this money um, flowing in, as you mentioned, Emma, um, earlier, that, that we'll see that, that indeed this can be a financial priority. Another area that we've been discussing is how, tech, how technology corporations, the major platforms, particularly Facebook and Google, can um, actually they are they are best situated right now in a time when everybody's working from home and, and things are moving digitally to make changes to their platforms, particularly to consider that with all of these children online, uh, this is an opportunity to better invest in safeguarding their privacy and their safety. And so this might be the time to take up some recommendations we've made earlier in, in UNICEF reports, which is to, um, to make privacy be a default rather than an opt-in. And, and in that case, um, reduce the amount of unsolicited images coming in from strangers and um, people, people they are not connected with in their networks. Um, I think that those, those, are, those are starting points in my mind. Um, do you two want to jump in with other ideas in terms of how we should caution um, governments in, in terms of knee-jerk reactions and, um, and, and directions to go both for the short-term and long-term? And, and I'd like to just preface this with this is new for all of us, and this is chaotic and stressful for all of us. And um, as we're talking, we have colleagues who are ill. Um, some of us are ill, and um, and we are we are trying to to grapple with this too. And so we're we're applying our depth of knowledge to this situation. But recommendations are likely to shift as we learn more. Sure. Thanks, Monica. I think that's a, a very all encompassing overview that you gave there. Um, in terms of, of, of law and policy responses, it, it is concerning that we have countries who are enacting a state of emergency, which, which is needed in order for them to pass certain legislation and to make money available. But often that, that state of emergency also legally entitles them to pass all kinds of legislation that they would not otherwise be able to and to bypass concerns that we may have around data collection um, by, by the private sector. So we're seeing um, solutions at the moment to, in, in the health sector to track patients who have been diagnosed with, with COVID-19. Um, and we're seeing talks between governments and even agreements between governments and the private sector to, to access the data from our phones, to survey us in a way that 
may have been going on before, but is, is now perhaps being ramped up. Um, and we want to make sure that, that safeguards are put in place and that we don't um, throw everything to do with human rights and children's rights out the window to, to address the current health crisis, because that's going to come back to bite us in, in the long term. Um, and in the same way, when we're looking at the edutech um, solutions out there, some of them perhaps are, are collaborations between government and the private sector, some of them endorsed by schools, some of them are going to be companies just coming up with their own solutions that they offer out there to the public. And we need to make sure that, that they're mindful of, of respecting privacy, that they're, that they're not taking an opportunity to, to mine all of this data from children and to use it for, for commercial and other purposes. Um, and that, that the kind of methodologies they're, they're using are, are appropriate because often I think what we see is, is well-meaning um, players in the private sector come up with solutions in this kind of context without having the background in child rights and and uh, and in relation to privacy and data protection to to properly put those safeguards in place, particularly in an emergency context where they're just trying to get things done quickly. Patrick, I see you nodding. Do you want to pick that up? I mean, it's it's it is hard to to add anything meaningful to that because I think you know it. Re we really do have to find a way of balancing the long term and the short term solutions. And as as Emma said, and I think Monica, you laid out so well. We we're responding to a crisis. We all in, in dealing with this crisis in various ways, um, and we know that crises often open up opportunities for obviously the best to come through but also the worst and the worst comes from an individual level but also on a policy and the governmental level as well um, they you know often are these opportunities for abuse that that coexist with crises of any type um, and we have to make so sure that we try and be cognizant of the risks of undermining the long-term well-being and safety of children and the opportunities that exist in our immediate short-term responses. Um, you know, I know that some countries have been speaking about increasing content filtering and blocking and even speaking about internet shutdowns, which seems a bit counterintuitive given that how valuable the internet could become and is becoming. Um, to those who have access to it in accessing resources and counseling and educational material. But there are all these, these um, you know, possibilities that this does get used to actually infringe on children's rights and opportunities. At the same time, the solutions that we do put in place um, that are focused on children um, also have to be seen as part of the first step towards a systemic and systematic reform um, of the entire set of institutions and systems that exist around children in order to enhance their safety. Um, and it's going to be very easy to divert resources very quickly into one direction um, to respond to this. But we need to make sure that we are building parents and caregivers' capacities, teachers, educators' capacity. We need to build, I mean, there is so much learning that could happen here in terms of, well, how do you provide these resources? to children that don't have resources? How do you make alternative systems work uh, for supporting 
um, protecting children? How do you tap into peer support networks and all these other networks that we kind of haven't really been drawing on um, to provide support to children? And I think we need to think of it very much in terms of this sort of creative, um, systematic kind of systems rethinking um, going forward, making sure that all of these pieces do fit together, health, education, um, justice. I think the moral of this story is certainly that there are no quick fixes and that technology certainly isn't that quick fix. And that, and that um, as we focus most of, I, I think as, as governments focus all of their energy on reducing the potential for a pandemic, uh, we need to keep raising concern that children are being considered in this process. And perhaps if I can just add something, um, you know, we, we, this is unprecedented. You know, we all accepting that we all come coming from different backgrounds. Um, all the people who are focusing their minds on this, but that's true. But I do think that a lot of this brings to the forefront conversations that, that, that all of us here around the table have been speaking about for quite a long time and that researchers and policymakers have been grappling with in terms of how do we keep children safe while promoting the opportunities? How do we keep them safe while not infringing on their rights? Um, and we've been having this conversation around online child sexual abuse, but this has really catalyzed it. And I think um, it's really just been forced to the forefront um, of conversations now. You know, I think we need we recognize we need to deal with this in, with an intensity that we haven't had to in the past. I think that is an amazing note to end on, actually, that we need to deal with this with an intensity that we haven't had to in the past. I just want to say that we are speaking um, around the globe here. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're speaking with Patrick Burton in Cape Town, South Africa, and then Emma and I, Emma Day and I are in uh, California. Emma is in Northern California in Berkeley, and I am in Central California in Ventura. I just want to thank you both for sharing your expertise and your time today. I I always feel it's an honor to work with you and just in this conversation, again, have been inspired by your insights. Thank you so much, Monica, for the opportunity. And uh, it's always, the feeling is mutual. Very inspiring to work with you too. What can I add to that? Thank you, Monica. It's been great. And it's always great to chat to both of you. Thank you.